Is everybody okay? Is the heat okay? You right? Is everybody all right? Do we need to open the window? Everybody okay? All right. I'm going to start strong tonight. You guys ready? <laughs> Anyone here consciously and willfully disobeying uh, Jesus Christ in your life right now? It's pretty blunt, right? Uh, has he clearly told you what to do and you simply are not doing it? Are you uh, defying and disregarding what your God has called you to do and what you know he's leading you to do from his word? It could be 101 different things and it really doesn't matter how big it is or how small it is. If we know what he says, and he's called us to do a thing and we don't do it, it's sin, right? It's sin. There's no pretty way, no pretty name to put on it. I know you've probably heard it before. But the good is the enemy of the what? The best. The good is the enemy of the best. You may be doing a very good thing right now in your life, but if it's not what God has called you to do, it's sin. I could be sitting right now standing here preaching the gospel to you in Milano if in fact God called me to the Sudan, right? If He called me to the Sudan but I thought Milano would be a, a cushier gig, then I'm sinning right now, standing here preaching the gospel. So, that's an important distinction to remember. We saw in men's Bible study just a couple of weeks ago, we, we, uh, we looked at that, that uh, account of Saul you may remember the Lord God gave Saul specific instructions to go and wipe out a city that was in rebellion against him. And, and Saul about half obeyed. Do you remember the story? Fractional obedience. Do you remember what it cost Saul to obey God halfway? It cost him his kingdom. God removed the kingdom from him. I heard an old preacher say one time, that God is as interested in partial obedience from you as your spouse is interested in partial faithfulness from you. Think about that. God is as interested in partial obedience as your spouse is interested in partial faithfulness. And I know that all of us in this room have one thing in common. There's no question about it. I know you know what the word rationalization means. And I know you're not afraid to do it. Okay? I think that's a universal human characteristic. I looked it up in the dictionary. To rationalize is to devise a self-satisfying but incorrect reason for one's behavior. Or simply to justify oneself. Now, this is as old as sin. How did Adam justify his sin? It was Eve's fault. Now, how did Eve justify it? It was the serpent's fault. It's as old as... Sin, I've never met a human being yet that's not highly skilled at this art of rationalization. If you're not highly skilled at rationalization, come up and, and talk with me. I'd like to get to know you better. <laughs> so I looked up some, some synonyms for what it means to rationalize, and immediately I saw what it means is to reduce the truth. This is really the connotation. To reduce facts, the reduction of truth. Listen to some of these synonyms. It's like when we hear the Word of God, we read the Word of God, we understand the Word of God, but, but, but in varying degrees, each one of us is prone to decrease what it means, downsize it, cut back on it, lessen it, diminish it, or slim down the clear implication of 
the Word of God. I think we're all way too good at this. I think we're all way too accomplished at downsizing what God clearly says in His Word. We read it, we understand it, and immediately we begin to cut back on it. I don't know about you, but I think that's our first inclination for many of us. Partial faithfulness to your spouse is no faithfulness at all, is it? 99% faithfulness is what? 100% unfaithfulness. Now, we know we're sinners. The Bible tells us we're sinners uh, in the fall and by nature. We are sinners. The Bible teaches us this. And we know no Christian ever attains sinlessness. We know this. And I'm not talking about sinlessness. I'm talking about you knowing exactly what God requests or desires or commands in your life and you not doing it. This is what I'm talking about tonight. You knowing specifically what God has said and you are specifically and purposely and, willful, and willfully disobeying Him. I want you to understand this is what I'm talking about as we look at our text tonight. John 21, the last chapter of the Gospel of John. You may, you may remember that back in Matthew 28, the Lord Jesus had instructed His disciples to meet Him on a mountain in Galilee. So as we open our Bibles to John chapter 21, are they on the mountain waiting for the Lord Jesus? Verse 21, chapter 21, verse 2. And they were together, Simon, Peter, and Thomas, and Nathaniel, the sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, and two others, probably, probably Andrew and Philip. Verse 3, Simon Peter says what? I'm going to go fishing. And they said to him, We will come also with you. They went out and got into the boat. And that night they caught nothing. I, I just want to point out to you that they got in the boat, not a boat. To me, this, to me, I infer from that that they got in Peter's old boat. They're supposed to be on the mountain. And they decide to go fishing. They decide... To go fishing. Now, I'm going to give you my take on these verses. I'm not dogmatic about it. I'm not dogmatic about it. But I think these guys are taking the first step to returning to their old way of life. I think they're in the process of downsizing what God has called them to do. I think they're going to customize their obedience. It's going to be fractional obedience. And I think, I think them returning to fishing is their first step in doing that. Jesus said... Wait for me on the mountain. But they're not on the mountain. They're fishing. Now, is fishing a sin? No. Unless you're supposed to be on the mountain. Fishing's a sin if God told you to be on the mountain. So, they went fishing. And again, it appears to me that these guys are returning to their old way of life. I think this whole disciple thing was a little more intense than maybe they had bargained for. And it had taken them way out of their comfort zone. Okay? Do you understand what I'm talking about as a Christian? It had taken them way out of their comfort zone. And, and I think they're thinking, hey, I can just be a good Christian fisherman. Right? Nothing wrong with that. I can just be a, a nice guy. I'm a much nicer fisherman than I used to be because I've walked with Jesus for three years. I'll be a nice guy fisherman. Nothing wrong with that. 
And there absolutely is nothing wrong with being a Christian fisherman unless God's called you to preach the gospel. And then there's everything wrong with it. And if God's called you to, to, be, to meet him on the mountain and you're fishing, there's everything wrong with it. I've been in the ministry for 20 years, lay ministry and now vocational ministry. And I, I've seen this a lot. Men and women who initially, they come to Christ, at least they appear to come to Christ. And they're pumped and they're jazzed and they're excited about, about following, radically following Jesus Christ. You run into these, some of these people 10 years later and they've got this glazed look on their face and they're not following Christ anymore. They have sit down spiritually. They're not following hard after Christ anymore. They're not really concerned about radically obeying the Lord Jesus. You know what they've done? They've taken, they've taken His call and they've domesticated it. Man, the church is full of this today. They've taken the radical call of Jesus and they've tried to fit it into their old life. They've tried to downsize it and customize it into their old life. It's kind of what I think Peter and the boys are doing here. You know, you see many people come to Christ and they start off with Christ, but then it gets a little uncomfortable. Uh, God takes them out of their comfort zone and sometimes it just gets downright inconvenient and unmanageable. And people don't want to follow Him anymore. I bet you know examples of this. People that you know. John Eldridge wrote a book several years ago. And he says, you walk into your average church in America and you will find a church partially if not completely filled with bored Christians. And to me, the phrase bored Christian is an oxymoron. If you are truly following Jesus Christ, I mean, if you are truly on His heels, if there's no daylight between you and Him, I promise you, you will not be a bored Christian. You will not. The Lion of Judah has called us to follow Him. I Am has called us to follow Him. The Alpha and the Omega has called us to follow Him. Friends, if you are following Him, you will not be bored. And if you are a bored Christian today, you are not truly following Jesus Christ. He told you to meet Him on the mountain, but you're somewhere else. You're somewhere else. Where are you? If you're a bored Christian, you need to go look in the mirror. It's not because God's not thrilling. It's because you're not with Him anymore. You've left off the pilgrimage. You're not following hard after Him anymore. You've sat down spiritually. And I think Peter and the boys are starting to sit down. They're starting to downsize what God had called them to do. I can hear them. Maybe God just wants us to be good Christian businessmen. Maybe that's it. We'll just be good Christian fishermen. Maybe that's all He really meant. No! What did He say to him when He called him? He said, I'll make you what? Catchers of men. They're not supposed to be in that boat fishing. They're supposed to be waiting on the mountain to meet with Jesus Christ to get their commission to go be catchers of men. Did you notice how much they caught? How much did they catch? Nothing. 
I think there's a not-so-subtle message here for us, right? If you're in disobedience, what can you expect? You're not going to be prospered if you're in disobedience. God will not prosper you spiritually if you're in disobedience. You can count on it. I think there's a not-so-subtle message here. And so why, why did they come back with nothing? Because the sovereign, omnipotent God ordered every fish in that end of the Sea of Galilee out of the net. Those fish couldn't have got in the, in the net if they wanted to. They were under sovereign decree not to get in that net because His men weren't where they were supposed to be. And He's going to teach them a lesson. He's going to teach them a lesson. Friends, if you're a Christian and you're disobeying God, you cannot be prospered. God will not prosper you. God will not prosper you if you are in disobedience. If you're supposed to be on the mountain, friend, my, that's my exhortation tonight. If you're supposed to be on the mountain, when you leave here, you go get on the mountain. Post haste. You go get on the mountain and you meet with your God. Hebrews 12 tells us this, and we see this in the text tonight. God disciplines those He loves. And this is such a beautiful thing. The Lord Jesus comes to His men. And do you notice He doesn't bring... He doesn't bring a rod. He comes in great tenderness. I'm going to read Hebrews 12, 6 through 8 to you through the, from the message, which is a paraphrase of the Bible. It says this, It's the child he loves that he disciplines. The child he embraces, he also corrects. God is educating you. He's treating you as a dear child. This trouble you're in uh, isn't punishment, it's training. The, norm, the normal experience of children... Only irresponsible parents leave children to fend for themselves. Would you prefer an irresponsible God? The Lord Jesus is teaching them this lesson. There is no prophet outside of me. Don't domesticate my call. Don't bring it down to worldly standards. Don't go back to your old way of life. You are a son of mine now. You belong to me. This is part of what the Lord Jesus is saying to His men. Verse 4 and 6. Jesus is on the beach and the men are about 100 yards out. Verse 8 tells us they're 100 yards out and they don't recognize Him. And Jesus says, hey, you got any fish? And they say, no. And He says, hey, cast your net on the right-hand side of the boat and you will find a catch. This happened before. God is so sweet here. This had happened before, right? And the catch was so great that they could not haul it into the boat. And John says, what does he say? Verse 7, John says, Peter, it's the Lord. I've seen this before. This happened once before. Do you remember in Luke chapter 5? Do you remember when the Lord called these men to begin with? They had fished all night and they had caught nothing. And the Lord Jesus said, cast one more time. And they did and the nets were breaking and the fish, pardon me, the boats were sinking because of all the fish. You remember what Peter, Peter, Peter bowed down and he worshipped Jesus Christ right then and there. And the text says, Jesus said to them, from now on you will be catching men. You are mine from now on and you will be catching men. And the text says what? They left everything and followed Jesus Christ. Let me ask you this. Have you left everything? And I'm not talking about material things. I'm talking about your heart. Is your supreme affection the Lord Jesus Christ? Friends, that's how I define conversion. When someone asks me, what is, what is, what is the, the hallmark of true conversion? I say it's a heart in love with Jesus Christ. 
Have you left everything to follow Him? Are you a catcher of men? And do you see this beautiful parallel here? Jesus reminds them of their original call to be catchers of men in the same way He initially called them with this supernatural catch of fish. Verse 7, John John says, Peter, it's the Lord. And, 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 and Peter, what does he do? He jumps into the sea. The, the text says he threw himself into the sea and he begins to swim to the shore. Yes, he's supposed to be on the mountain. And yes, he's in disobedience. But, but Peter exhibits the hallmark of a true believer here. He has failed, but he cannot wait to get back into fellowship with Jesus Christ. Friends, it's not as Christians that we don't fail and we don't sin. It's that when we do, we are like Peter. We're in the biggest hurry to get back into fellowship with our beautiful, wonderful Savior. And Peter can't wait. He can't wait to get it right. He can't wait to get it right. And he flings himself into the sea and he swims to the Lord. And the Lord is here to discipline His men, especially Peter. Peter is their leader. Peter had led them back to fishing and the Lord is here to discipline his men and he hasn't as I said he hasn't brought a rod he's come in great tenderness and compassion and do you notice here in verse 12 and 13 um, well before that I want, I want to bring to your attention that do you notice here verse 10 11 and 12 God has made them breakfast <laughs> do you see this God made them breakfast and do you see also, God served them breakfast. And when I see stuff like this in the Bible, I am in awe. I bet some of you read these things and you're not in awe. Do you know who this is, fixing breakfast? Do you know who this is, serving these sinful men? Do you know who it is, serving these men who are in disobedience? Do you know who it is? It's God. It's I Am. It's the Lion of Judah. It's the Alpha and the Omega, as I said. It's our awesome God. And I've been saying it for about the last month, but I can't get past it. Who is a God like ours? Who? Who is a God like ours? Who is a God that takes on flesh and becomes a man? Who is a God that condescends to be born in a stable? Who is a God that works as a humble carpenter. Who is a God like this that has nowhere to lay His head? Who is a God like this that washes the dirty feet of sinful men? And who is a God like this who was scourged and crucified for His people? The prophet Isaiah says, there is no God like Him. There is no God like our God. A righteous God and a Savior, Isaiah chapter 45. And the prophet Jeremiah reminds us, chapter 31, that our God loves us with an everlasting love. And He draws us with loving kindness. And I want to say to you, who is a God like this? And if you're not in awe of a God like this, you're not getting the Gospel. You're not understanding it. And it's not impacting your heart. You're not letting the Holy Spirit bring the full force of that truth into your heart and your mind. This is God. This is God. I don't care what men say. It's God in the flesh. And He's come for His men. And He loves them with an everlasting love. And He loves Peter. Look here. He turns to Peter. 
And he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Do you love me more than these? Now, there is a legitimate debate here about what Jesus means by these. Some men say that Jesus means, do you love me more than these other disciples? And that could be legitimate. That could be a legitimate interpretation. You may remember back in Matthew 26 that Peter says, I don't care who, who abandons you, I will never abandon you. So he, he basically said, I love you more than anybody else standing here. So this might be a correct interpretation and I'm not going to be overly dogmatic, but I believe Jesus is saying, Simon, do you love me more than these fish and these boats and these nets and your old way of life, your old comfort zone, your old way of income, your own means of security. Peter, do you love me more than all of that? I really believe that that interpretation flows better with the text as we make our way through the rest of John 21. Peter, do you love me more than your old life? Will you really go with me? Or are you going back? Are you going back? Have you downsized what I've called you to do? Have you rationalized it? Have you customized it? Are you into fractional obedience, Peter? Or you just want to be a good Christian fisherman now? It's not what I've called you to do, Peter. I've called you to be a catcher of men. And I, and I do believe this fishing expedition was the first step in domesticating God's call on their life. You know what domesticate means, right? It means to tame. And brothers and sisters, we got way too much tame Christianity in the church today. We got way too much lethargic and lukewarm Christianity in the church today. And you've heard me say it many times from up here, but I don't want our church to ever be guilty of lukewarm Christianity, of domesticated Christianity, to strip it down of all its power and all its life and all its joy. That is a heinous thing to do to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Peter, do you love me more than your old career? Do you love me more than all your old stuff? Will you follow me, Peter? Will you follow me no matter what it costs? We've said it a lot as we've gone through the Gospel of John. What is the biblical test of love for God? What is it? Anybody? Obedience. It's never not anything else. It's always, it's not one thing. It's obedience. Jesus said, John 14, 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And he followed up there, John 10, 27. I know you remember this verse. I say it a lot. My sheep hear me. They know me. And what do my sheep do? They follow me. That's what my sheep do. They don't go sit down somewhere. They stay on my heels. They follow me. They don't sit down spiritually. They stay with me. My sheep follow me. They love me. And they obey me. Jesus Christ asked Peter three times, if he loved him. And many will say, this, this public profession, three, this thrice profession of love for Jesus Christ was meant to offset his, his uh, 
thrice denial of Jesus Christ. And I think the Lord Jesus is reestablishing Peter as the leader of the group. And Jesus asked him three times, do you love me? And, and, and Jesus, pardon me, Peter responded the same way each time. He says, Lord, you know I love you. And I know I've shared this with you before, but you've got to love God's omniscience if you're a Christian. You've got to love it. Because on your worst day, the day when no outside observer could look at you and say that you love Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ knows you love Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen? When your wife or your husband or your best friend or whatever, they can't tell you're a Christian today. But Jesus Christ knows you're a Christian today because He knows the bottom of your heart. And He knows you love Him. And I praise God for His omniscience. I praise God for His omniscience. And Peter says, Lord Jesus, You know I love You. What does he say? Go be a catcher of men. Go be a catcher of men. Go be a catcher of men. Tend my sheep. Tend my lambs. Do what I told you to do. Peter, if you really love me, you can't go back. And I want to say this to you, Christian, friend, if you're here tonight. You can't take Jesus Christ and try to stuff Him into your old life. You can't do it. I see it tried and tried and tried again. But you can't take Jesus Christ and try to, and try to fit Him into your old life. He's called you to a new life. He's called you to a different life. And if you really go with Christ, it's going to be radically different than the old one. At least in your heart and your mind. It's going to be radically different than the old one. Look at verse 18 and 19. Verse 18 and 19. Peter, tend my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grew old, you will stretch out your hands and, and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now, this he said signifying by what kind of death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, Jesus said to him, follow me. Did you notice? I don't know what your... Does your Bible have an exclamation point? Does your Bible have an exclamation point after follow me? Okay, I have the NAS, which is the most literal English in, uh, translation of the Greek. Mine says, follow me. And brothers and sisters, there will always be an exclamation point after that. If you've heard Jesus say, follow me. There will always be an exclamation point after that. But Jesus says, Peter, do you really love me? Will you follow me all the way to the cross? If you notice right here in verse 18, he says, you will stretch out your hands. Now this is a, an idiom or a euphemism or a shorthand uh, for the fact that he will be crucified. John tells us in verse 19, he said this to signify what kind of death Peter would, uh, by which Peter would glorify God. And we know Peter preached the gospel for three decades. Faithfully preached the gospel for three decades. And what does church tradition tell us about Peter's death? He was, in fact, crucified. And he was crucified upside down because he refused to be crucified like his Lord. So Peter was crucified upside down. You know what, you know what it says to me? When Jesus says to this to Peter, I love this, this is so, this is so precious and personal. It's not bad news that Peter's going to be crucified. This is good news. Peter knows he's not going to fail him again. This is, a, this is a personal message from Christ to Peter. Peter, you're not going to fail me next time. They're going to take you out and they're going to crucify you and you're going to go. And you're going to glorify me 
in that. And I love this. I think, you know, some people say, well, how could he live for, for three decades knowing the, the cross was coming? Because he knew God was faithful. And if he knew the cross was coming, it was for his good, right? And God was going to do an awesome thing through it. And then Peter says, what about John? <laughs> Do you know the text? What about this guy? What's going to happen to this guy? What does Jesus say to him? What is that to you? You stay on me. You don't worry about John. What's that to you? What happens to John? And I know that you guys have experienced this. Sometimes Christians like to evaluate what God is doing in this Christian's life and that Christian's life and maybe my Christian's life or my life. And, and there's great disparity at times. And Jesus says to Peter, don't you worry about my providence in his life. Don't you audit what I'm doing in his life. You follow me. You know, Christians want to evaluate. Well, some Christians are rich and some are poor and some are healthy and some are sick. Some have large ministries. Some have anonymous ministries. Some have incredible visible fruit. Some have almost no visible fruit from their ministry. Some are greatly persecuted. Some are only slightly persecuted. Some are delivered and some are martyred. God says, that's my business, Peter. It's not your business. Your business is to follow me. Daniel was delivered, but Stephen was stoned. This is God's prerogative. This is God's prerogative. We're not to waste our time. Jesus rebukes Peter. We're not to waste our time and energy evaluating and asking God about these things. Our uh, energy is to be spent staying on the heels of Jesus Christ. So here's the end of the, the message and the question for you and me. Are you following Jesus Christ? And I don't mean in some downsized way. I don't mean in some fractional way. I don't mean in some partial way. I don't mean in some customized way. Are you hearing what God says to you in His Word and are you obeying Him? That's the message. That's the message tonight. Some here, you may not be a Christian yet. You may not, you may not know, know the Lord Jesus Christ. That may be your first step in following Him. is to come and receive Him as your Lord and Savior. If you don't understand about that, you come talk to me. I'll be happy to talk with you about that. And Christian, if you're sitting out there and you're a Christian tonight, have you gone fishing when God means for you to be on the mountain? Are you in the spiritual recliner? Are you in disobedience to the Lord, are you consciously and willfully disobeying what you know He's called you to do? If you are, I'm just going to use an old word here that you don't hear a lot used anymore. I'm going I'm to call you to repent. Repent. Because your joy will be found on the heels of Jesus Christ. Your joy is not going to be found on the spiritual recliner. So Jesus is asking you and He's asking me the same question tonight. Every believer in this room, Jesus Christ says, Do you love Me? Do you love Me? Do you love Me more than this? Do you love Me more than these? Will you follow Me when it gets hard? Will you follow Me all the way? 
Will you go with me? That's the message tonight. He says, do you love me? And then he says, oh, if you really do, follow me. Let's pray. Oh, Father, what a, what a beautiful text. Oh, Lord, how you are so long-suffering with us. How we see your tenderness and your compassion as you come to these men and, and draw them out of disobedience and pull them back into obedience and how tenderly you do it, how graciously you do it, and how you do that in our lives over and over and over and over again. Oh God, thank You that You're a long-suffering God, a God of infinite mercy, grace, and compassion. Oh Lord, I need it. I need it. Thank You, Lord. Thank You, Lord, that You're such a gracious God. Thank You that You're such a faithful God. You will not leave Your people in disobedience. You come for them. And You discipline us because You love us. As dear children, You discipline us. And You call us out of sin and death and that bondage. And You call us into life and joy. The life of walking with You hot on Your heels. Obeying You every day to the best of our ability. Radically following You. Oh Lord Jesus, thank You for Your faithfulness to us. Thank You for the faith that You have given us. Thank You for the Holy Spirit who convicts us of our lethargy and our apathy. Oh God, I pray Your Spirit will fall on us and enliven us and quicken us. Oh God, that we would be radical followers of You. No more half measures in our lives. No more half measures in this church. Father, because we declare that we love You. And because we declare that we love You, we know You ask us to follow You. Oh God, give us the faith. Give us the passion. Give us the zeal. To follow You all the way home. All the way home. The beautiful home You've prepared for us. Oh God, we give all praise, glory, and honor to our beautiful Lord in whose name we pray. Amen. Let's stand together.